Milo, welcome to Dad Saves America. Thank you so much. So, you know, we've known each other for a while now, and we released a video uh, back when we first started the channel that featured one of our early conversations about what you do. But for those that are seeing this for the first time and meeting you, what do you do? What's your, okay. what's your job? I have uh, a bunch of jobs. So I'm uh, an associate professor of psychology at Long Island University. Um, I also have a private practice um, where I see lots of different kinds of patients. Um, and um, I'm developing a treatment for child anxiety that's pretty different than what's out there. I would say those are the three things I'm spending the most time on these days. And, um, and talk to me about what your specialty is. So you're a psychologist. A clinical and, psychologist, yes. and 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 what does that what does that mean? Like, what, what did you study? How do you end up being a clinical psychologist? Okay, so there are a bunch of different branches of psychology, and clinical psychology deals with the treatment of psychopathology, which is just a fancy way of saying dysfunction of one kind or another. Um, so you need a PhD usually to do that, and so I, after college, I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst and spent five years there. And just when I thought I was done, I needed to do a two-year postdoc at Stony Brook University. And then you need to take the licensing exam to be able to actually see a patient. Uh, so it's a, it's a long process. But yeah, that's what I do. Now, you're working with patients, but you don't go to a medical school, right? So how does what you do as a PhD and a doctor of psychology, how does that intersect with something that my dad's a otolaryngologist yeah, so he yeah. has an MD right so where did it, where does the no, like this notion of sort of medical school fit in or is that something different help me understand that yeah that's a question a lot of people have when i get a, when i get phone calls they want to know if i can prescribe medication and psychologists cannot other than in a couple of states with some extra training um, so we don't go to medical school we get a phd and so it is uh, training in assessment of psychological disorders, training in the treatment of psychological disorders. We get a lot of statistics training. Uh, we don't spend time really understanding the physiology of the human body other than probably one graduate class. Um, so it's a very different approach to helping people with psychopathology. We, we don't use what is called the medical model, which is mostly based on diagnosis of discrete categories of problems. We view people on a continuum on a number of different um, dimensions, and that helps us understand why it is that people develop problems and then how to go about helping them. So, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear you talk about, like, can you, you, know, can you diagnose and then prescribe drugs as a dad, and this is Dad Saves America, is... ADHD, Ritalin, these things that are just getting given to our kids at, I think, seemingly astonishing rates. Can you, like, help me understand what's going on, since I know you work with kids, but you're not prescribing these things. This is not part of what you do. I am not. Well, just to be clear, we, clinical psychologists do, can and do diagnose psychological disorders. The range of options that we have for treating them don't involve medication. And there are excellent behavioral and cognitive therapies for practically every kind of 
mental illness that don't involve medication. Occasionally there is an important role for medication to play, but for most things, including ADHD, often the first approach that makes the most sense, both in terms of the outcome that we would expect and also the risk involved are behavioral interventions. And with ADHD in particular, that involves training parents to help prevent the problems we see in ADHD and also handle them once they occur. And things like emotion dysregulation or tantruming or aggression are great examples of behaviors that don't actually respond very well to medication and with the right person can respond quite well to behavioral interventions. So we met because um, when we first, even before starting Dad Saves America, I was working on a film um, that was, the working title of which was The Kids Are Not All Right. And, it, and it, was, it, it was born out of the fact that I'm very grateful. My son really seems to be well adjusted. He just turned 18 and so now he's off to young adulthood. Doesn't have anxiety. Um, almost to a fault. I think I'm more anxious than him. <laughs> but well, we all have anxiety. You're, I guess what you're saying is he doesn't have anxiety that limits his life. Right. Sure. Yeah. He doesn't have, and he doesn't feel inhibited in the things he wants to accomplish for himself by feelings of anxiety. It doesn't seem. It doesn't seem excessive. I, I once heard a, a very smart person say that anxiety is not the problem. Avoidance is the problem. And so, feeling of anxiety is not in itself a problem and can be really useful. So if a bear were to bust into this room, it would be great to feel anxiety because it would cause us to do something about it. But when we start avoiding things in life, that's the problem. The thing I noticed was his peers, a lot of them, and this started in middle school and even a little bit before, um, a lot of them were suffering from what seemed like crippling anxiety in, this, in, in a social setting, and just in general, and I would talk to parents and they talked about either putting their kids on medication or... So I was seeing that personally, and then it's become a big story. And this was before COVID. So COVID has like poured gasoline on the fire, yes. all of this stuff. Um, and that led me to the book, Coddling of the American Mind, which then introduced me to Lenore Skenazy, who connected us. So I guess a great place to start is can you give me a sense of where we are from your experience clinically in this, um, in this mental health spectrum as a, as a society? It's a big question that you can only answer within your experience, but like, it seems like kids are in worse shape than when we were growing up. Is that true? Or are we just, are we just catching things that were there that we just didn't pay attention to before? Both are true. So when we look at things that are objectively problems like suicide attempts and hospitalizations and self-harm, those things have gone up dramatically in the last 10 years. And that can't be fully explained by more of a focus on mental health. It's probably also true that we are more attuned to things that we used to sweep under the rug. But I don't think any serious thinker on this thinks that this is a measurement issue. And we, in fact, uh, I, all the data really support the fact that we are in a, in a new era of, of anxiety in particular. Depression, 
has also gone up, but it seems like anxiety is what has gone up the most in terms of psychopathology. I think one of the things that's so hard with mental health issues is where do you start? What is the problem? And there's all these labels that get thrown around. So give me an entry point into this. If I see there's something going, going wrong with my, with my son or daughter. Yeah. Um, we mostly think about the concept of impairment, not so much the, the level of any emotion or problem. Um, and so if you're finding that whatever you are worried about is causing impairment with your child, and that typically means at school or in social relationships, that's probably the first signal that you might want to look into this more closely. Um, so Johnny's been a good student and suddenly his grades are starting to take a nosedive. Right, so that's, that's sort of the second thing, which is trajectory. Okay. So there's impairment, which is kind of like well, the baseline level of problems someone is having. And then the second thing to think about is whether that is getting worse in a fairly short period of time. And both are signals. They're not signals to panic because everybody has periods during their life where they don't do as well as other times. Mm -hmm. But when both things are happening, things are getting worse and it is impairing functioning, that is a great time to at least ask a pediatrician, what do you think about this? I mean, one of the things that's so hard, especially like as a first time parent, I have one son, so I've gone through this whole cycle once. So every part of that was new and crazy and, you know, where's the baseline? Because it's like they're changing so much as they grow. So how do I know if they're doing okay, like compared to what? Is there some standard that yeah. I can access as a parent that says, well, this is what unimpaired behavior looks like? Well, there's two ways to think about it. There's a comparison to your own functioning previously, and then there's a comparison to other kids your age of the same sex. The first one is easier for parents to notice when things yeah. have gone downhill in some way. We have ways of assessing kids compared to other kids. And the main way that we do that is with screeners that are directed to parents or to teachers. And teachers are usually much better at this because they have much more experience with hundreds of kids. But even with a parent who has only had one child, we have evidence-based, valid and reliable assessments that are not too difficult to fill out. They don't take more than about 15 minutes that can take your child and compare them to other kids and tell you what percentile are they on anxiety, on depression, on misbehavior. And that also can be a good place to start. So, you know, I have a son, you have a, a son and a daughter, right? Yes. So you're, you're experiencing that. You get, you get both, you get the, the double-barreled experience. Are there pretty fundamental differences between boys and girls when you're looking at them as a clinical psychologist? Absolutely. So for the entire history of assessing childhood disorders, we have always broken out these scores based on boys and girls because the profiles or what is typical is so different. And, and the, the main generality to make is that boys tend to have what we call externalizing problems. So they project their problems out to the world. Aggression is a great example of that, whereas girls have internalizing problems. They tend to uh, sit with the difficulties they're having, and that is anxiety and depression usually. And the problem with that is that that doesn't bother adults as much. So 
you know, girls sit there and stew on themselves and beat themselves up and we don't, it's harder to notice. A teacher will pick that over a misbehaving, externalizing boy any day of the week. And so girls tend to be under-diagnosed in some ways because they're just not disrupting the classroom environment as much. Does this also contribute to what I've heard from and observed, which, which is K through 12 standard school seems kind of rigged against boys, like behaviorally. Yeah. Um, is that part of this? Like, how do you think about that environment for boys versus girls? I, I agree. I think what we typically demand of children during a typical school day is pretty inconsistent with what boys want to and, and are often doing outside of school. And so we tend to see more punishment of boys. Um, uh, you know, we, it's been called the sort of feminization of boys that the school system contributes to. And this is not exactly something that has been studied carefully, but from a logical perspective, it makes sense that if we are reinforcing compliance and we are reinforcing uh, attunement to the feelings of other people, girls are always going to be better at that on average than, than boys are. And so that is one, I think, quite logical way to understand why boys are struggling in school these days in comparison to girls. It's been, that's one of the things that's been interesting is the, the, the thing that's happening with the mental health of our kids is manifesting in, in, in a lot of weird ways because, yeah. you know, we've had Warren Farrell on the show talking about the boy crisis and, you know, now, now you know, you're a college professor, so does your school play out like it's now 60% girls, 20, 40% boys in, in college? What does it look like? Well, at your school. Yeah, my situation is quite interesting because I only teach doctoral students, so we, we don't work with undergraduates. But we've seen in clinical psychology the shift toward women in the field, where it used to be mostly men would get PhDs in clinical psychology, and now that has totally shifted on its head to the point that we sort of get excited when a man applies to our doctoral program because so few of them do. When we look at the kids, they're, they're adults now, but the, the doctoral students who struggle, the number one predictor by far is male sex. Hmm. So in, in, in graduate programs in clinical psychology, we probably are about 30% of students are, are men. And in terms of the students who get kicked out, who don't do well, they outnumber girls by about three to one. And so when you look at both of those numbers together, there's probably a nine-fold increase in risk for men versus women. I'm going to weave around here a little bit because these are these things that are like colliding in a strange way. So the boy crisis and the culture is part of this too, in my opinion, that the sense in which boys or masculinity has sort of been discounted as being toxic and all this kind of stuff doesn't help anybody. Um, but so you have this sort of failure to launch problem for boys and psychological problems that are part of that. But it does also seem like in the, in some of the areas that, that where it comes to like psychological problems and behaviors, girls are having a really hard time with cutting and, and, and these internal, this internal damage they're doing to yeah. themselves. And yet they are 
in the other respects outperforming boys. So there's a couple dark paths that are going down. How are they different? Like lay that out for me. It's, it's complicated and, and somewhat challenging to understand. So there, there's no question that girls are suffering from internalizing issues at a higher rate than boys are. But they somehow manage to pull it together and become more successful at school and, and afterwards. And it's, it's unclear how it is that that happens. Yeah. And it's possible, and we've talked a little bit about this, that some amount of adversity ends up being helpful to people. Now, I'm not suggesting that the levels of anxiety and depression we're seeing in girls are good for them, um, but that is one way to understand that if they can get over this hump of adolescence and early childhood, they tend to then get it together and, and do better. Whereas boys tend to just be behind all the time and never fully catch up to girls. And, you know, whether that's a... Uh, uh, just a, a brain difference between girls and boys, you know, the, the sort of theories that boys are always about three years behind girls. Um, it seems about right. Yes, that passes yes. the sniff test right. to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and maybe it's worse now with some of the things that you've been describing on a societal basis. Um, but it is true that girls end up doing better if they can get over that very difficult late adolescence, early adult, adulthood period. So this is one of the things that's so interesting in our discourse around mental health right now with our kids and young adults is, is like, it tends to be focused on the girls because they, have, they exhibit these challenges, but then you open the aperture to like life success, and the girls are doing great. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that makes it that much harder then to focus on the boys because they just get ignored at every stage, it feels like, culturally. It's like, well, they're, they're not, yeah, they're playing Call of Duty, but they're not cutting as much, and they're, you know, they're fine. And the patriarchy or something. So I'm not going <laughs> to worry about what happens when they get out of school and keep playing Call of Duty into their 40s instead of becoming a thriving person. Yeah. For some reason, there has been a, a cultural shift, I think, in terms of what parents think their job is. Mm -hmm. And so if we look back historically at, if you were to ask parents, what is your role? What are you supposed to do as a parent? Yeah. It was sort of keeping my kids safe and helping them to be successful uh, in, in life. Yeah. And now it has become, in my opinion, more about the momentary interactions that parents and kids have to the point that many parents will tell me that they think their job is to keep their kids happy at every moment. And they don't mean to do this, but they inadvertently reinforce avoidance by jumping in when a child is experiencing discomfort or disappointment or any of these things that we've talked about. And they take away that opportunity for the child to learn what might have happened if no one had intervened. Anxiety seems to be the thing that is the, is the currency that we're talking about a lot and anxiety perhaps feeds into depression or there's a relationship there, but like lay a groundwork for me and for parents who are watching so that we understand kind of what it is we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you how clinical psychologists think about anxiety. And we think about this triangle and the three points of the triangle. And we actually can do this for any emotion, but let's just take the example of anxiety. So we think about the behaviors involved, the cognitions or the thinking involved, and the emotions or the feelings involved. 
And so for, for any problem, we can conceptualize that problem as having those three components. So let's, let's talk about anxiety. And so we had talked about how avoidance is actually the problem, and that's a behavior. It can be a lack of a behavior as well. So when, when people are anxious, they tend to avoid things that make them anxious. So totally logical to do that. So I'm afraid of groups. I don't like being in a crowd. Yeah. I'm going to avoid it. So what's, what's happening to me? You are feeling immediate relief the moment you decide, I'm not doing that. And what is it? What, what do I need relief from? Like It's an uncomfortable feeling. That then we get to the bodily sensations, which can be thought of as a behavior as well. So if, you're, if you have social anxiety and you're about to give a presentation, you're going to feel super uncomfortable. And the moment you decide that you're not doing that, that all goes away. And that is, that is a, a rush of reinforcement that happens. And so the next time you're in that situation, you're probably going to do the same thing because you are guaranteed relief from this very uncomfortable state of being. So let's just think about how powerful this is. You decide, I'm not giving that talk. There is a 100% chance you're going to feel a huge rush of relief. That is super powerful. If you decide to give the talk, there is a 100% chance you're going to feel pretty awful all the way up to doing it and maybe while doing it. And then maybe afterward, because you're going to ruminate about how you... I was terrible. I was sweating the whole time. Yeah. People could see I was nervous. This is the worst. I'm terrible. Exactly. So, like, <laughs> who would ever do the difficult thing? Like, why would anyone make that? It is illogical to give the talk. Right. And there's these things that I, maybe it goes without saying, but it's like getting sweaty, my heart racing, uh, self-doubt. All uncomfortable. I'm beating myself up internally. Why do I feel this way? So there's all kinds of stuff happening. Yes. I'm making myself feel worse for feeling bad. Yes. Okay. You, 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 have, you now have a secondary problem. Not only do you feel bad, you are asking yourself, why you do you shame. feel bad? <laughs> yes, that's right. So that's a secondary emotion. So avoiding all of that makes so much sense in the short term. But what is the problem with avoiding that? You don't ever get to practice this very difficult situation, and so you don't get better at it. And so then you tend to avoid more and more and more to the point that it starts interfering with your life. So one of the things I've noticed, and I think there's a, there's a huge technology component to all of this when you talk about what's happened with our kids in the past 10 years. You know, Jonathan Haidt and others have focused on social media and screen time a lot. Our kids are having less sex, which you could say, oh, well, that's good because premarital sex isn't a great choice necessarily, perhaps, you know, depending on how you look at it. But it does seem like it's actually like a, a canary in the coal mine of some problems. Yes. And so one is, oh, well, they're just texting all the time, so they're not getting face-to-face. -face. But then it seems like there's a mass epidemic of avoidance of just social interaction and taking the kind of risks that you need to take before you can have an intimate relationship. I need to take the risk of asking you on a date. I need to take the risk of going on a date and engaging in a conversation that goes well and the risk of asking you out on another date. And all that stuff is oh, I can just avoid that and have a text thing and maybe some Snapchatting and exactly. we're in the talking phase or whatever our kids are saying about how this process goes now. Right. Is that, that's part of what's going on that's here? That's a perfect example of what I'm describing. So why would anyone ever take the risk of asking someone out when there again is a 100% chance you're going to feel terrible? Maybe the person says yes and then you feel relief at that point. Whereas you... Or not, or you're like, oh no, now I got to... 
do good on the date. And... <laughs> right, right. So even even if it works out the way you want it to, that can also lead to all kinds of, of anxiety. And so we have a, a system in place now where avoidance is is the obvious answer in from a short-term perspective to practically any situation. And then we have thousands of Silicon Valley engineers figuring out how to make avoidance kind of a business model. And that becomes the phone that's in front of you. So our society really has shifted toward reinforcing avoidance in every possible way. And that's where we get into the second part of the triangle, the cognitions that we have about anxiety. So we can think of these cognitions as falling into two categories. When we're anxious about something, number one, we tend to overestimate the likelihood of a bad thing happening. And number two, we tend to underestimate our ability to handle it if a bad thing happens. So, there, okay, so we overestimate the catastrophe. The likelihood of the catastrophe. I'm gonna get on stage There's and- There's an 80% chance I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a fool of myself. I'm gonna trip and fall yeah. and it's gonna be horrible and I'm gonna be laughed Well, that's the second part. It's gonna be horrible is the okay. second mistake that we make. So we overestimate how bad it will be. That's another way of saying we underestimate our own ability to tolerate if things go wrong. Okay, so we, it seems like we're pretty hardwired for some of this. Yes, and there are great reasons why we yeah. tend to think this way. In the past, and, and in other conversations we've had, we've talked about this, this catastrophizing. We see it with the environment, we see it with, you know, with a lot of things in our society, that this, there's, there's this kind of blow things out of proportion, take it to the sort of cataclysmic extreme, yeah. Um, but it's happening at the individual level all the time, you're saying. All the time. Part of it is that evolutionary reason that if we tend to overestimate the likelihood of something bad happening and it doesn't happen, we don't really lose anything. Whereas if we underestimate the danger of something and we're wrong, so, you know, you use the example of the, the bush that is moving a little bit as, as our caveman ancestors walked by it, if we were to say, oh, that's probably nothing, and it's actually a king cobra, then maybe we don't have offspring. Whereas if we tend to see snakes everywhere and we're super careful, that's gonna make us miserable, but we're gonna survive and then we get to pass on our genes. Is there a difference between anxiety and fear? Are those two things essentially the same word? Well, some people conceptualize fear as a more automatic physiological response to a live stimuli like a snake. Whereas anxiety can include things like uh, anxiety after the fact when you ruminate about something or anticipatory anxiety. It also uh, is, can involve other emotions and feelings other than just the automatic fear response. But okay. they go hand in hand. So. Are there other ways in which anxiety is actually useful to us besides keeping us from being bit by a cobra or mauled by a bear? Yes, anxiety is a wonderful motivator to do lots of the important things that people do. And, and this is where we get into higher level orders of anxiety. So if you have existential anxiety about uh, dying and never having contributed to something, that is very different than fear of a snake but that can certainly drive you to work really hard and contribute. And you know, people have been talking about this from the time of Freud, that anxiety can be, and, and is actually a more mature motivator 
of behavior than some of the other motivators of behavior. It seems to me, and I certainly say this often, that making decisions from a place of fear often seems like a bad idea. Like yeah. deciding not to, whether you're gonna do something or not with fear being the most operative emotion or force, it seems like that usually tends to be bad. Like I, I'm, I'm in a job I don't like, I have this new opportunity, I'm not gonna take it because I'm afraid of losing the thing I have and maybe that won't work out. And so I close the door on what might be the next stage in my career. Or I really like this girl or this boy, but I'm too afraid of rejection, so I don't act. So how should I understand fear as fear slash anxiety as motivator versus fear and anxiety as cognitive distortion of, the, of choices that might make my life better? Well, one of the reasons that fear driving decisions is usually a bad idea is what we just described, which is that fear tends to be a very unreliable, invalid indicator of reality. And because we tend to overestimate the likelihood of bad things happening. So if it were true, actually, that there was an 80% chance that you would make a fool of yourself if you gave a talk that you're worried about giving, that wouldn't be a bad way to make a decision about whether to give the talk. But we know that we overestimate dramatically the likelihood of bad things happening. So we are using this 80% number to make a decision, but it might actually be 2%. And so that is going to, over time, lead us to make the wrong decision. In psychology, we talk about approach behaviors versus avoidance behaviors. And this is related to what I think you're talking about. Most people operate from a position of avoidance behaviors. They think about what to spend their time on, what things to do based upon fears of the opposite of that. And in therapy, and this mostly happens with adults, we try to shift people over to approach behaviors. And this is based on a discussion about someone's values. What's important to you in life? What are mm -hmm. your goals in life? Then what are the behaviors that are consistent with those things? As opposed to what are the behaviors that you're doing to avoid bad things? There tends to be more fulfillment when people are behaving in terms that are, or, or, or when people are behaving consistently with the things that they value. Most people don't make decisions in their lives based upon their values. They mostly let life, the current of life, take them where they want to go. And sometimes they end up in a good place where they feel fulfilled, but that current of life can take you anywhere and can often take you to places that are totally inconsistent with your values. When I bring up this idea to my patients, what, what, what are your values? What's important to you? I often get a shocked blank stare like they have never thought of that. And, and mm. then I, I might ask them, so how do you make decisions about the direction of your life? and they either don't have an answer or they tend to talk about avoidance behaviors. Well, I did this because I didn't want that to happen or I did this because I was afraid of this. They usually don't talk about doing things because it's concordant or consistent with values that they hold. And so then that leads us to a conversation of what are your values? And there are many ways to think about values. You know, we can talk about uh, relationships, we can talk about employment, creativity, physical fitness, 
there probably are 40 or more different kinds of values that clinical psychologists talk about. So this is your dartboard. You've got this yeah. four, you know, 39 or whatever values in this dartboard that are divided up like a pie. That's right. And so, how close are we to the bullseye on that value? So talk to yeah, yeah. lay this out for lay this out for me. I'm trying to think about my life. All right, I'm gonna start throwing some darts on my values. So well, let's imagine out. a blank dartboard. Okay. Everyone can sort of ha has that image. A and circle with a dot in the middle. And then, <laughs> but then there are 36 slices, right? And so we can think of each one of those slices as corresponding to any value that you might have. So what what's one thing that you don't even value, but is a value? What, what oh. can you think of? Um, well, I do value this, but faith. So okay. practice in a faith, uh, tradition, but practice in religion. Perfect example. So if we just think of that one uh, slice, we can think of two darts somewhere in that slice. And the first one is, in a perfect world, how important is faith to you? And the closer it is to the bullseye, the more important it is. So do you mind saying how close it is to the bullseye for you? I'd say it's pretty close. It's gotten closer over time too. I'd say like, you know, now I'm 45 and it, it keeps getting closer keeps and closer, getting closer to the center. Right. So that's another interesting thing that yeah. th this, is a, this is a living, breathing being and our yeah. values change over time. So let's say that it's pretty close to that bullseye. And so if I were to ask you, when you think about your life and how you spend your time and what's important to you, how much time and energy and attention are you spending on faith? It's also moving closer, but there's a pretty good distance between my ideal and my actions. Okay. Yeah, I'd, it'd be it'd be further out than I'd want to be. I don't go to church every Sunday. Yeah. I, you know, uh, I haven't taken steps with my own son to get him confirmed and things like that, which make me feel very shameful. So I've got all kinds of problems. <laughs> okay, so you're experiencing some discomfort about the distance. Yeah, even thinking about that, I can feel like like my temperature rise, like, oh. So this is what, what therapy is, it's uncomfortable, right? Am I getting red? I think I might be getting red. Eh, you're all right. All so, right. so if we did this 35 more times, we probably would find other slices where there's a distance between how important something is to you and how much time and, and effort and energy you're spending on it. And by the way, it can easily be the other way, where something is not at all important to you, but you're spending a lot of time and energy on that. Is there something that comes to mind? Something that is not important? And the best example is scrolling through your phone. Yeah, I would say the thing that's not important is reading the news. And I read the news way too much. Okay. For sure. The news doesn't matter. I have no impact on it. It's a waste of my time. And yet I will wake up and open up the Wall Street Journal app and, and doom scroll and there you go. be worried about the banking crisis or something. It's like, what can I do about that? Like, I can't do anything about that. So, so if we want to get yeah. really mathematical about this, one way that we can sort of uh, think about how fulfilled you are in life is if we add up all those distances all around the dartboard and we might get some number. This is like the total distance. And then in therapy, what we might do is we would take one of those slices and say, well, what would be an actionable thing you could do to move that closer to its ideal uh, you know, position? And it might be, well, what if you could go to church more? And then we would say, well, what gets in the way of going to church? What are the barriers? And then we would talk through that. And then you might get a homework assignment to go to church more. <laughs> and then over time, that, yeah. that distance is, is narrowing ideally, and then you are feeling more fulfilled in your life.
So that's one way to think about therapy. So this is a really interesting model because it, 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 it concretizes a lot of planning you can have in yeah. your life. And the, the, thing, the thought, that, the words that come to mind for me is growth mindset. And tell me if this is, a, if this is related because it, it sounds like the idea of approach behavior, like I'm gonna move towards a vision for my life, yes. is, the, is a growth mindset model of behavior. I'm, I have a vision for the world being better and my life being better and I am gonna take steps towards that actively. And is so this is the hard part, is that that is a harder way initially to live because you don't get the guaranteed relief of avoidance. You actually will probably have more initial difficult emotions and situations because you're pushing toward a place you want to be. But over time, the fulfillment will start to round that out and then you will end up at a better place. So one thing personally that I think has maybe biased my own uh, behavior is that since I was a little kid, I loved to be creative. I loved to draw. And so it, it, it's very hard for me to think about starting with a blank sheet of paper and having that be anything but an approach as opposed to an avoidance. Like an avoidance is I'm just not gonna start. Right. But to start with that blank piece of paper, I'm like, I'm gonna draw Mickey Mouse or I'm gonna do some you know, crazy thing where Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck are murdering each other with chainsaws because I'm a boy, so that's the kind of nonsense I'm gonna draw. Uh -huh. um, creativity feels to me like it is fundamentally a kind of approach behavior. Is that, is that true? Yes, so we can think about all of these slices as being more prone to approach and more, or more prone to avoidance. And I think it's pretty clear that creativity tends to be an approach behavior, if you can do it. But there are lots of people who value creativity who don't take out the paper. They might have the thought, well, what if this, this drawing is terrible? then what does that mean about me? And maybe I'm not a good artist and they're filled with anxiety. And so putting the paper away relieves that immediately. So even something like creativity that would seem to be a perfect example of an approach behavior can, can lead to avoidance all of the time. That's really interesting. One of the things that I think to me is related to creativity is curiosity. And that also feels fundamentally like an approach mindset to, to, to have questions and to seek the answers. Do you think about curiosity in, in, the, in this sort of way, in this context of these behaviors and these values? Absolutely. And, and similarly to creativity, let's think of the avoidance aspect of curiosity. So curiosity killed the cat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or made the cat super uncomfortable. And so, if we think about being curious, that means for a moment being flexible about listening to other opinions or doing things that you're not sure about. And for many people, that is incredibly uncomfortable. And so curiosity is immediately punished by the discomfort that people feel. And I think we see that in today's discourse quite a bit, that being curious is not the easiest thing to do. Oh, the, the lanes that we're being told to stay within for threat of being ostracized or being canceled or yeah. 
I've seen stats from polling with college students that 80% of college students feel like they can't speak their mind on college campuses, which is, it's like, well, then why are you, why does this thing even exist? Well, you're, you're talking about sort of external sanctions for curiosity, but there are also internal sanctions, if we want to think about it that way, that it can be quite uncomfortable to change your mind and to consider a different opinion. Cognitive dissonance is, I think, totally underestimated in terms of a driver of behavior. And, and what cognitive dissonance is, is a, uh, a disagreement between two positions or between a behavior and a position. And it is incredibly uncomfortable for someone to be in that space. And so what do they do? They either shift an opinion consistent with their behavior or they rethink their behavior to not have been the way that it was. And maybe an example here w would be useful. So let's say that you, uh, let's, let's say- Let's say that I talk about how important faith is and yeah. then I don't go to church all that often. Okay, so let's, <laughs> if, if you're not gonna change the behavior of going to church, then this is gonna cause a tension for you, right? Mm -hmm. Because how do you think about the fact that it's very important for you, but you don't do it? So we have to, the brain is not happy in that situation. And so we have to reconcile that in some way. So there's a couple ways to do that. You might revisit how important it is to you. Actually, you know, religion is not that important. And now we feel less dissonance because our behavior is now more, those two darts are moving closer to each other because you've devalued how important it is. So that's, that's one way. Or you could sort of, rethink the behavior and you might say to yourself well you know i don't go to church but i'm actually thinking quite a bit about god and that counts and god is happy with that and so we are then reconceptualizing a behavior but or justifying justifying is, is 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 a good word one way to to really understand people is to view lots of behaviors that we see through the lens of cognitive dissonance and that can actually be quite helpful in being less judgmental. We can see, not necessarily justified, but we can see the logic in what might appear to be hypocritical behavior if we view it from the lens that it is comfortable for this person and we aim toward comfort. So we have this dartboard that is there whether we've thought about it or not probably for all of us. Oh, it's, it's there, <laughs> yeah. There's just these things we value. Maybe we haven't put much time into talking through them, but they're there. You know, our family, our faith, our work, our success, money, security, kids, grandkids, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then there's these gaps. Maybe, maybe a way to think about like the, a, a purposeful life is going about finding the, the most comfortable ways to close these gaps or the most authentic ways to close these gaps. I mean, it feels like you're giving a map for a, a, a purposeful life in a, in a, in a sense. Yes. It's, it's what we call values driven behavior that when your behavior is matching and driven by your values, you tend to be more fulfilled in life. What role does this tool then play in the work you have to do with people who come in impaired by their anxiety? Is, is, are these two, are these kind of two separate domains? No, th there's a ton of overlap. Be and in particular with anxiety, because people who are anxious are again driven by avoidance behaviors and don't or can't stop to think about what would be an approach behavior in this situation. And so there are a number of different therapeutic techniques that we use. The one that comes to mind is what we call opposite action. 
So let's say that you're at a party and you feel somewhat socially anxious about walking up to somebody and talking to them. We would train that person to notice in real time the cognitions they're having. So my brain is telling me that if I walk up to this person, they will reject me. So that's step one. In real time, can we notice the internal monologue that we have? Step two is what is the urge I'm having? And in this case, the urge would probably be to turn around and walk in the other direction. So if we can observe both of these things happening and we slow down this process, and it's, it's not easy to do, then at that point, we can make a more thought out decision. And so what are our options at that point? Well, we can listen to our brains, say, you know what, this is probably gonna be a disaster. You're the boss of me, brain, I'm gonna listen to you, I'm heading out the door. We can do nothing and observe the process for a little bit longer, or we can do kind of disobeying behaviors. So we can think of our brain as a dictator and it's telling us to leave. And we can say, hold on a second, I'm not sure I'm gonna to listen to you today. What are some other options? And there's a whole range of options, but one of them is what we call opposite action, which is in the most sort of- You get punk. Overt, extreme way. What would be the literal opposite thing to do than what your brain is telling you to do? So in this case, what, what, what do you think it would be? I mean, if you're, you go up to the most difficult person to talk to, the host of the party, yeah. the richest guy in the room, the prettiest girl in the room, whatever, and-, and That's right. Hey, it's the George <laughs> try Costanza to tell a joke, moment, right? It's it's George Costanza doing the opposite. I mean that that yeah. I, I use that clip in therapy all the time because it's a perfect example of opposite action. He, yeah, says, he goes up to this beautiful woman yes. and he's like, "I'm unemployed. I live with my parents." That's right. And she's my like, name "Tell is me, George. my yeah. name is George. I'm bald." That's right. He's like. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I think, yeah, she, she's like, oh, hi, my name is Victoria or something like that. Yeah, so, so this is an example of a number of things that we've talked about, but it's, it's slowing down this very quick process that is automatic. It is making decisions based upon our values, and it is learning to disobey our anxious brain because our anxious brain tends to be wrong a lot. And now, if our anxious brain is wrong, we don't get eaten by a bear. We, the, the consequences are more social. And so- We don't we, meet our future spouse that That's night. right. And so there's more of a rationale for disobeying our anxious brain. If you were a caveman and we were having this exact conversation, I would not tell you to start approaching bushes that are moving to test this weird belief you have that there's a snake behind every bush because you wouldn't be here next week. Whereas now we don't fear death as much for good reason. And so even if we're wrong and the host does tell you, why are you talking to me? Get, get the hell out of here. We now- <laughs> Who brought you to this party? That's right, that's right. <laughs> but now we can shift over to that second cognition, which is that if the bad thing happens, it will be catastrophic. It'll be the worst thing ever. And in therapy, we actually sometimes purposely make the bad thing happen so we can test the secondary belief. So it would suck if the person said that to you. You would feel pretty bad for how long? You know, it's funny because it's like, it's hard to say, not that long. Most people think they would feel terrible for a really long time. And yeah. so my, I, my inclination yeah. would be, well, that guy can go screw himself. <laughs> like I'd switch to, 
Okay. I'd activate the Jersey part of my brain that's in that right. instance. That's right. So if we think about it as an equation and that's the worst thing, that the person is rude to you and you kind of laugh it off, then it changes the equation a bit that taking a risk maybe makes a lot more sense because the downside isn't so terrible. Is this also where this uh, the concept of coping comes in? Is it like coping behaviors? Is that part of the way you think about dealing with these uncomfortable, anxious situations, how to cope with them? That becomes part of the discussion. And so I will say, say to clients, so let's imagine, I want you to really take me to the worst possible thing that could happen. And, and I want you to embellish this. I really want this to be the absolute worst. Let's talk about what might happen, what you might do in those situations. And coping strategies fall very neatly into that. In those moments of anxiety, most people don't think about all of the capabilities they have to cope with difficult situations. They just think about the outcome. And so like, oh, slow your breath, take count to 10. That'd be like a, would that be an example? Like, there's, okay. There's an infinite number of coping mechanisms, but when you're considering walking up to that person, that's not what you're thinking about. Your brain is simply, if you're like most people, thinking about what's the likelihood that they're gonna reject me and how terrible is it gonna be? And both of those answers have nothing to do with coping. So that's a shift in focus that can be quite helpful to people. If things don't go well, what will I do about it? Now we become more problem solving and then the bad outcome doesn't seem so bad. I mean, there's so many instances in all of our lives, not just our kids, where we face these challenges. I think I should make more money. I wanna go into my boss's office and say, I deserve a raise or I'm, you know, or X, Y, Z and, and playing those things out. Um, one thing that is really interesting when you were talking about observing my brain is, wait, what now? So. Which part of my brain is giving me the ability to observe my brain? Uh-huh. There's a dual consciousness. There's something going on there because I think like, okay, well, my brain is my consciousness. It's kind of who I am. But then there's these voices telling me like, no, it's going to be a disaster. Get the hell out of here. But there's the other part of me that can observe that yes. and can say, you shut up. There are no bears in this dinner party. There are no snakes on the stage. Uh, I'm going to do the opposite of what you're saying, but you're me. So what's this? Who are these different characters in my head? Well, let me, let me say one thing about how you just framed it, which is the you shut up part, right? So this is how most people approach thoughts that they consider to be irrational. So, you know, we, we can get to a point where people can do a pretty good job of saying, all right, my brain is telling me that there's a 80% chance that if I raise my hand in class, I'm gonna say something really stupid. And as a therapist, we can say, well, let's look at the data. So how many times have you raised your hand in class in your life? Uh, let's say a thousand. How many times has the class burst out laughing with how stupid it, it was what you just said? Uh, once? Okay. So. We have one, if we look at the base rates, we have one in a thousand chance. You're, you're thinking it's 80%. So most people can, can start to do that. The field of, of cognitive behavioral therapy has shifted a bit in the last 20 years from a place of what we call disputation, which is what you're talking about. That thought actually is illogical. That doesn't make any sense. To a place of observation, which is what we were talking about previously. 
And there are real advantages actually to not getting into an argument with your own brain about how irrational your thoughts are and to being in a place where you simply observe your thoughts as they happen. Sounds very uh, transcendental meditation-like. I've got has, my mantra, yeah. there's crazy stuff going on in my head, I observe the crazy stuff and I come back to my mantra. Yes, and, and there are roots in Buddhism, there are roots in uh, Greek and Roman philosophy, so none of this is, is new, but it, it has sort of infiltrated cognitive behavioral therapy to be a quite important part of what we do. Can we do a little experiment here to demonstrate this? Let's do it. Okay, so let's take a thought that is painful or difficult and let's, let's just make one up. Let's use the same example. So let's say you're having the thought that um, if you raise your hand in class, the professor will laugh at you, okay? Yep, so, okay. So I want you to say out loud, if I speak in class, the professor will laugh at me. And I want you to say it three times, and I want you to really believe that it's 100% true. Okay. If I raise my hand in class, the professor's just gonna laugh at me. If I raise my hand in class, the professor is going to laugh at me. If I raise my hand in class, the professor is going to laugh at me. Okay, so just notice what that feels like. And I know you're not in school anymore, but maybe you can remember. I've had nightmares about being back in college. Okay. So this is not, not being laughed at per se, but so I can trigger a little bit of, oh, I don't want to. See if you notice anything internally, little butterflies happening, any of that kind of stuff, okay? And so the disputation approach would be, well, that's not true because I've raised my hand a thousand times and the professor has never laughed at me. That tends to not be super convincing to people who are in an anxious moment, right? And I'm sure we've all had the experience yeah. of telling people that's not gonna happen. It doesn't really go over very well usually. Well that, I mean, one thing I'll just say right out of the gate is you're trying to make a logical appeal to yourself and pretty much everything I've read and know and observed about human behavior with others is that logical appeals mostly don't work. Exactly. So. so so they don't work even when you're making a logical appeal with yourself. Like, well, that's illogical. It's not probabilistic. It's like, well, I don't care about that. Huh? And not only does it not work, you pay a cost for disputing your own thought because now you are arguing with yourself. If you can sort of imagine a courtroom in your brain, you are now having a back and forth and you're not paying attention to what's happening in your life. Okay. So you're paying a cost in terms of being in the moment. Why are you such an idiot? I know. Exactly. No, I'm not an idiot. No, you're an yeah. <laughs> So it's a thief of the present moment yeah. to be disputing yourself. So now let's take a different approach. So I want you to take the same sentence, but I just want you to add a couple of words to the beginning of it. And the couple of words are, oh, I notice I'm having the thought that. So I notice I'm having the thought that if I say something in class, the professor will laugh at me. So say that three times out loud. I notice I'm having the thought. Okay. And I just want you to notice if that feels any different. And if it doesn't, that's okay. But I just want you to Here. ask yourself, right. does this feel different? I notice I'm having the thought that if I raise my hand in class, the professor will laugh at me. I notice I'm having the thought that if I raise my hand in class, the professor will laugh at me. I notice I'm having the thought that if I raise my hand in class, the professor will laugh at me. You know, it's funny, even though this feels a little silly. Actually, it did feel different. It felt like put in a, like, 
in a in a in like a bubble or like in a wrapper. It's Love like it. suddenly now it's like been. Yes. It's like I think about the way when you wash your hands, what's happening? It's like the bubbles are like encasing the grime and taking them away. I can't even believe you said that because that is the the analogy of bubbles with thoughts sort of popping out of your brain and you seeing them as thoughts. And we call this cognitive diffusion because it creates a little bit of space with the thought. And so let's think about what's happening when you are diffusing from a thought. You are noticing it as a thought and so it automatically reduces its power and its importance. And it allows you to not have to react to it. And so if you see this thought as one of a thousand thoughts that you'll have today, now it's not particularly important. And that allows us to then pursue that values-driven approach behavior because this scary thought is just, just a bubble. And we can use lots of different techniques to see our thoughts as thoughts. And then they allow us to get away from avoidance behavior. I can't remember if I actually read the book or if I've just seen talks and heard summaries, but Daniel Kahneman has this concept of thinking fast and slow and that there might be two modes that we have. And it seems like fast is the is the immediate, like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm anxious, I don't like that. My snap judgment and then slow is the more deliberative mode. Right. Is that what's, ha is that what's happening? When you say, okay, I'm at the dinner party, <sighs> Getting, oh, I don't like this, oh, I should get the hell out of here. And then I notice I'm having the thought that I should get out of here because this is exactly. uncomfortable. Yes. Have I shifted modes? Absolutely. And what does that mean? Like how is, how is it that I have multiple modes in this conscious self? It's like, do I have multiple selves? Like what's going on there? Am I bi is everybody a little bipolar? Like what, is there a way to understand that? that's meaningful about like the nature of my own identity? Because the other thing it brings up is, like what is identity when I can observe my own thoughts that are kind of unproductive? Like who, which part of that dialogue is the real me? Is, is the fear one the me? Is the slow deliberative one the me? Are they both me? So the, the first way that I think about answering that question is just from a physiological point of view. And so, the brainstem, the sort of lizard brain, the older part of our brain, is that fast thinking brain. And one example that I've heard that makes sense to me is, imagine you're wading through the water at the beach and you suddenly see out of the corner of your eye something dark moving towards you and you jump back. So that's, that's the brainstem doing its job. It, its only job is to keep you alive. And again, it will tend to overestimate risk because a lazy brainstem means a dead person, whereas a hypervigilant brainstem will keep you alive, yet make you pretty miserable. So then we look over to it and we see that it's a piece of seaweed. And that's where we engage our cortex, our higher level thinking. What is seaweed? What do we know about seaweed? Is seaweed dangerous? Do animals hide under seaweed? And then we can make a more mindful, thought out decision. And this is really what is happening in these moments when we slow down and observe our thinking. We get away from the fight-flight response to what the situation is, to a more higher order approach behavior response that is often the exact opposite of the fight-flight response. So the little homo sapien turns to the little like lizard proto guy and says, cool it, we're gonna be fine. 
And that's exactly what we do in therapy is we imagine these are two characters either sitting on our shoulders or there are people at a table around a room and they're telling us stuff. And we're just sitting there and we're listening. And when they're done telling us what they're gonna tell us, then based on our values, we make a decision as opposed to impulsively listening to one of them, which often leads to bad decisions. So just quickly define what is cognitive behavioral therapy and, and your relationship professionally with it. So are you a cognitive behavioral therapist and what does that mean? There are a number of different schools, we can call them, of psychotherapy. And the one that most people know about is the Freudian school called psychoanalytic uh, or psychodynamic therapy. So is this the whole, tell me about your mother and this is why you have problems with relationships? Is that, am I being a cartoon character of Freud? I, I think a little bit and I think my psychodynamic <laughs> colleagues would, would recoil at that <laughs> characterization. Okay. But it is true that there is more of a focus on early childhood experiences in psychodynamic and psychoanalytic therapies. At around the 1950s or 1960s, a couple of people, uh, Aaron Beck and, uh, and a couple of others, who were trained as psychoanalysts, were noticing some patterns in the thinking of people who were anxious and depressed. That it had not that much to do with their early childhood. It was more about what was happening right now. And it's some of the stuff that we talked about, the overestimation of a bad outcome happening, and the underestimation of one's ability to handle it. And they started noticing these patterns. And so the, the role of cognitions in the present moment started to play a greater role in the therapy they were doing. And then they started to notice that those cognitions were very related to people's behavior. So when people would think these things, they would do these things, and also very related to the feelings that they would have. So someone who's depressed will tend to have very pessimistic thoughts about their ability to do something. They will avoid situations and they will feel sad. People who are anxious will overestimate the catastrophic outcome of something. They will also avoid situations and they will feel anxious. And so this started a new school where cognitions in the present moment became the focus of therapy. And that's the cognitive part of cognitive behavioral. And then they started experimenting using some of Pavlov's work and Skinner's work with some behavioral interventions to treat psychological conditions. And the main behavioral intervention is what we call exposure therapy. And the so, best, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I'm afraid of height. I, this is true. I'm, I am afraid of heights. Yeah. Uh, I was at a Marriott hotel and the elevator was glass facing the like court interior. And I could just feel my, I could just feel my my heart rate rising as the elevator goes up to the twelfth floor. It's like oh, and I'm take, I'm I'm starting to breathe a little heavy now. I am looking, so I'm sort of forcing myself to look and observe. But I'm also like nah, it's not helping me. I'm still I'm still afraid. But so how do you help me overcome yeah. that? So then you avoided at some point looking, or did you keep looking the whole time? Because I'm aware of this, I I did I I always try to like force myself to look whenever oh, there's great. heights. Yeah. But so but but lay this out for me. What is exposure therapy? So is it, that what is that part of what it is? It could be. So what usually happens is someone in your situation would then start taking the stairs 
or would take the enclosed elevator or would make sure there were other people in the elevator with them. And this is insidious in that it tends to grow and grow and grow to the point that maybe at some point you don't take any elevators. So a behavioral intervention coming from cognitive behavioral therapy would be to fight back against the avoidance. And so we would do that in lots of ways. Maybe asking you to take that same elevator would be too hard at first. And so we might use what we call imaginal exposure, where we imagine you taking that elevator. And for some people with good imaginations, it feels like they're there. And so we can do that over and over and over. We can even use virtual reality and they have incredible uh, software programs where you are really feel like you're there. Yeah. And we could also do what we call in vivo exposure, which is literally getting on some version of an elevator over and over and over. And we would want to accentuate this experience. We would want to fight back against the avoidance by even prompting you to have a very big anxious response. So we might have you chug some cappuccinos uh, before doing this. So you're already primed to have a big anxiety reaction. And so you, you're giving me that look like, why would we ever yeah, do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like torture. <laughs> so let's say that you, you were able to do that. You, you have three espressos, you get on. I'm wired. You're I'm wired. Re I'm, ready to, I'm ready to feel real anxious. You have a full panic attack in this elevator. But because I'm there with you, you don't leave. And I can, I can coax you to stay and to take the elevator back down and then to take it back up and then to take it back down. And let's say we do this 12 times your panic attack will end over time. Your body cannot maintain the state of panic. And so if it ends before you leave the situation, you have just taught your brain a really powerful lesson that it was safe. It was uncomfortable, but it was safe. And so that's what we call corrective learning. And the next time you have to take an elevator, you will be probably less anxious about doing it. Now, this doesn't just happen with one instance of exposure therapy. We probably would need to do this over and over again, uh, but it's highly effective. So I understand, and from our past conversations and others, that this is, this works, like it really works. And that, um, you know, psychology as a discipline has a lot of places where you can poke holes at it. Yeah, not this one, this works. Yeah, one, so, it, it, it wouldn't be, there, you could make an argument that, oh, a lot of psychology is a bunch of nonsense. They don't know what they're talking about. They make a bunch of claims that they can't back up or reproduce. But, I say that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I, did this get started with PTSD? Like, where did this first... I understand that that's part of it, that the military uses this to help Absolutely. returning soldiers. Tell me about that. So it didn't get started with PTSD, but PTSD is maybe the best example of the effectiveness of exposure therapy. And it shows us the flexibility of exposure therapy because you can't exactly put someone back in the same traumatic war zone where they develop PTSD, but we can still replicate this in many ways. And so using memories, using... Um, components of the traumatic experience. So I had a client one time who we had sniffing gunpowder as he did these exposure exercises. And that would bring him right back to that initial traumatic experience because for him, that was a very powerful piece of this. When he would think back to that moment, the smell of gunpowder was in the air. And so it is used extensively 
in VAs. And, and VAs have been some of the pioneers of developing and expanding exposure therapy. But we use it for any traumatic event or any event, or even, it doesn't even have to be an event. Any, any experience that leads to avoidance is a perfect candidate for exposure. How are you bringing this to, these tools to bear on this generation of kids, especially in the aftermath of COVID, which produced all kinds of extra layers of anxiety? What do parents need to understand about where their kids are that this tool set can benefit them? So there are two answers to that, I think. And the first one is, if you have an anxious kid and you're lucky enough to find a therapist who knows what they're doing and is trained in exposure therapy, the typical approach that we've used for the last 30 years is to do exposure exercises with that child. So if that child is afraid to engage in social interactions, we would have them walk up to people and say hello as a first step. If that child is afraid of separating from their parent, we would practice separation over and over and over. And again, this works really well. It has one big problem, which is that kids don't want to do this stuff. It's literally the opposite of what they want to be doing. So if well, don't adults not want to do it either? Why is kids why, why does kids desire to not yeah. do the thing make it harder? So you're you're also right that adults don't want to do this, but adults can see the benefit of doing it if we can talk about the long-term outcomes that we might expect. Kids don't have that ability as much to think long term. And so all they hear is, we're going to do this thing that you hate, that you've been avoiding forever. And we're going to do it after a long day of school. And we're going to do it multiple times a week for a whole bunch of weeks. What do you think? They don't want to do that. So I'm going to run away. <laughs> yeah. So here's where this new approach that I'm developing comes in, which is how do we give kids the same skills that exposure therapy gives them in a package that they're willing to engage in. And this is where my work with Lenore Skenazy and Let Grow comes in, which is that we know kids want to be independent. Even anxious kids want to be independent. So can we use independence as a Trojan horse to do some of these difficult exposure exercises. And for the viewer that isn't familiar with Lenore Let Grow, uh, we've got a great documentary about her on the channel called Off the Rails, which tells her story. But the quick thing is she was called the world's worst mom because she let her nine-year-old take the subway. And in the aftermath of that, she, she's a, a writer and really funny and a, the, the classic New Yorker, she, she really jump-started this movement of free-range parenting. And Let Grow is a nonprofit that tries to help kids do exactly what you're talking about and, yeah. and empower parents. Mostly through schools. So yeah. they get involved with schools and they have homework assignments once a week to do an independence activity. So what I've done is I've taken her ideas and condensed them into what I call mega doses of independence. So when I treat an anxious kid, instead of saying, we're going to do the thing you're anxious about over and over, I say, what are some things that you would like to do that maybe you haven't been allowed to do. And they often can give me a pretty long list of things because from the age of two, and this has been established for 60 years, kids want to be independent. So it's not hard to come up with a list of independence activities with yeah. kids. As a parent, it's funny because it is, it's two to three that suddenly the word no becomes their favorite word. No, I don't want that, no. 
and the not straight just arm. no, but as as my daughter used to say, and I still make fun of her for this. She used to say, "I want to do it by yourself," and she <laughs> meant by myself. And this was at age two, and yeah. and kids will often say this. No, I can do it. I want to do it by myself. And this is where parents inadvertently sometimes you know, screw up. Screw up a little bit. So no judgment because I did it myself. I've been there, but. Yeah. We step in to help them, thereby depriving them of a moment of independence. And this can start really innocuously. You know, I tell the story of being at a party and I see a little toddler trying to take her sweater off and she got kind of stuck in the, the neck of it and the, the dad rushes over to help her pull it off. And I'm the only person who would notice this, but I'm sitting there thinking, that was an independence activity. I think she could have done it. And what would she have learned if she could take the sweater off? Oh, I can do this. I can even be uncomfortable while I'm yeah. doing this. And I have self-efficacy. But that, that was deprived. All right. So in the treatment, we start doing independence activities every single day. And they can involve doing things alone. They can involve doing things with friends. They can involve doing things indoors or outdoors. And an important part is that they can and should involve some amount of danger. And this is a little bit sort of shocking for a child psychologist to say to parents, but we will brainstorm some dangerous things that their kids can do. There's this book uh, my Lisa, my wife, bought uh I think even before my son was born, it was called The Dangerous Book for Boys. And it was all this stuff that yeah. you could do that's fun as for a boy with knives and, and things and weapons and swords. I'm a and huge fan of that stuff because how, how do we learn to manage risk? There's only one way, and that is by having experience with risk. You can tell kids a million times, don't cut it this way. You're going to cut your finger if you cut towards yourself that is not gonna make a bit of difference until they actually try it. And maybe they even cut themselves a little bit. That is the best teacher. And so somehow we've talked about the changes in parenting. Good parenting has become helping kids avoid all risk. And I think that's actually a terrible idea. We want kids to do things that are risky, as someone said, carefully. Well, it's, it's even, I think, worse than that. Right, because it's not merely that we as parents, and I, I think this is a function of wealth. It's like we're wealthy, we can spend more time with our kids, we have fewer kids, so we can just obsess about everything they're doing all the time and where are they and I put an air tag in all of your bags and all that stuff. And then they go out into the world and they go onto their phones and they are told essentially that if you feel anxious, if you feel oppressed by the world, Congratulations, you're a victim. Mm. And that's awesome, because now you have social credit yeah. as a victim. Yeah. And isn't that wonderful? And then they go to college, and they have the thing that seems like the antithesis of exposure therapy. Trigger warnings and safe spaces. It is the antithesis. So it does feel like our culture, for some reason, has, has created the, the absolute worst psychological experience for trying to become a successful, independent, robust adult. I, I totally agree. And let's just talk about what cell phones do. And, and so we, we have this thing at our disposal that the moment we feel discomfort, 
we can distract ourselves immediately from that. And so if you do that 100,000 straight times, what happens to our ability to tolerate discomfort or distress? We, that muscle dies. And so what happens when we get older and we become adults and, and we experience these things? We have no practice with what to do. So there's, there's the whole change in, in, in parenting and in university culture. But even if that never happened, these devices we carry deprive us constantly of the practice we need to deal with difficult things. It seems like one of the things that these devices have deprived us of is boredom. Yes. How do you think about boredom in this context? I, you know, when I, you know, 45. So when I would get home from school in third grade, we didn't, I didn't have a Nintendo because my dad was in medical school and we were, really didn't have very much money in our family. And, um, and so I'd go outside and it was like, we'll just go outside and Sean and Timmy across the street will play. And we didn't, you know, maybe we had a ball or something, but we'd just run around like animals. There was, we'd have to make it up. But there was a lot of boredom a lot of the time. Oh, I'd go shopping with my mom. She'd leave me in the car, which today would get her thrown in jail yeah. for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> well, she went into Marshalls because I didn't want to go into Marshalls. So I'm, I'm sitting there in a car with no book for an hour. That's gone. Well, let's, let's think about what the problem, if we want to call it that, is with boredom. It's uncomfortable, right? So it's just a flavor of discomfort that we have no practice with anymore because we are never bored anymore. But then there's the second piece, and Lenore Skenazy talks about this a lot, which is the creativity that comes from boredom. And so yes. maybe... Inventing games to play with yourself that's right. or your friends. That's right. So maybe in the back of the car with your sister, you were to say to her, let's count how many bald people walk by. And you were with both crack up laughing about that. And then you've just invented a game. That you're trigger, would never... You're triggering me for the hair, uh, the hair disadvantaged or whatever. The... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but, but let's imagine that you each had a cell phone. None of that would have happened. Would you have gained creativity? Maybe you see something interesting on your phone, but I think there's a special flavor of creativity that comes from boredom, and that just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, one of the things that has always been a tool of, of creative process is that constraints end up being really helpful when you're trying to have inspiration. That actually just a blank canvas, like a blank abstract, I'm in the, I'm in the, the loading screen of the metaverse and I can do whatever I want, isn't as conducive to creativity as, oh, I've got all these barriers and obstacles and I've only got these things, these three things to play like with. Like here's a hundred paper clips. Yeah, it's like, what am I gonna do with that? And I can suddenly come up with a lot more stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, one way to, this is an actionable item for parents, one way to do that is to create no cell phone periods of time each day. And it really could even be 30 minutes, and it's pretty easy to do this with software. Just the same time every day, the internet goes off, and, and you can keep your own internet as a parent if you want, but I encourage everybody to do this. And it could even be for 30 minutes each day. And that forces a little bit of boredom and then you get some of these benefits. What have been some of the best examples of transformation that you've seen? I know obviously you need to keep your, your, um, <clears throat> your patients confidential. Maybe we even talk about this, this, some of this work you're doing with this ind these in independence as therapy. Yeah. What's happening? What are, you, what are you seeing happen? So the theory that we had, and, and it was 
totally unknown and maybe somewhat controversial was that we could get a kid's anxiety about something better without ever talking about that thing. So if you are afraid of the dark, the theory was independence is going to make you less afraid of the dark and we're never going to even talk about the dark. That sounded a little crazy. So that's not even really, that's not exposure therapy, really. It's, it's a... anti-exposure <laughs> therapy in a way, in that we completely avoid the topic. So how could that possibly work? Well, we think that the benefits of independence are related to the causes of fears of the dark or of anything else. So this is exactly what we've seen, and I've been so pleased to see this, is that as we've been doing independence activities every day with these kids, the things that their parents brought them in for are getting better, objectively. We had a young girl, let's say younger than 10, take a bus to school uh, in New York City all by herself, and her cell phone actually stopped working, and she wasn't sure where to get off, and we might think that's the worst case scenario. But what did she do? She asked a stranger. She said, this is where my school is. Where do I get off? The stranger helped her. She got off. This same child came home the next day, and the thing that her parents were worried about having to do with separation anxiety wasn't there anymore. And wow. when I asked her why she wasn't doing this thing anymore, she said, well, I don't need to. I just took a bus to school, so doing this thing's not so scary to me anymore. If I had said to her, let's practice separation from your parent, she would have said, no way, I'm not doing that. And so that's kind of the theory. And, and you know, in my business, you know, the times that theories actually pan out are, are very rare. And so, uh, you know, I want to not get too excited as a scientist. We've only done one study so far. But so far, it's even better than what I thought. And even as far as the, um, the work with exposure therapy and your own yeah. observation, what kinds of things have you seen change that a lot of parents are probably experiencing with their kids to give them hope that, like, if I do this, this is going to make a difference? Well, the, the best examples with exposure therapy are separation anxieties. And so this actually involves more working with parents where they purposely set up some situations where they must be separated from their child. And we start really easy and bedtime is a great example. So if you have a child who leaves the room 50 times to get water, then right. we might set it up in a really easy way for them to exert a little bit of control over the separation. And if you want to, I can get pretty specific about how we do that. But one of the techniques we use is called the bedtime pass. And so let's say that your child leaves 10 times on average their bedroom per night. We would give them 10 passes. And we would say, you can still leave 10 times, no problem. No, no skin off your back. If you leave less than 10 times and you have some passes left over, so if they leave, they have to hand over a pass, basically. So let's say she leaves nine times and she has one pass left over at the end of the night. She can trade that pass in for something cool the next morning. And that creates wow. a little bit of separation. That's a little bit of exposure therapy, but it's totally optional. It's not pressured. And it's a positive reward too. Yeah, exactly. So that, that is sort of the, the friendliest, mildest version of exposure therapy. But we can also kind of go cold turkey and we can hold the door closed and they can scream and hit the door and that really works. And it works in three days and we're talking 90% success rate. This uh, 
brings us to something that we did with Mateo when he was little, which is ferberizing. Yeah, that's so he was a I'm baby. Yeah. He's crying. It's and you just wean them off responding to the crying, and it was it was like within three days he was sleeping through the night. So did you do it where you could go in and check on him, or you just closed the door and never went back? I think we did. It's been a little while ago now, but I think we did do a kind of phased. Okay. Like wait. First go in right away, then don't go in for 10 minutes, then don't go in for 30 yeah. minutes, and then... That doesn't work any better than just closing the door, but it is certainly kinder to everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it is very painful for the parent. That cry in that moment is shaped by evolution to get you to open that door. And I remember doing it with my own kids, and I teach this, and I'm a clinician, and I remember thinking, I'm, I'm traumatizing my child. And there's actually zero evidence that that's true. I'm, I'm the only person I know of that did a study on whether ferberizing led to a traumatic response and we did not find that at all. Oh, I didn't realize, really? Yeah. Because this is, it, ferberizing is very controversial. It is. Like you, you start, you Google Ferber method or, or um, whatever else, you, whatever you call it now. Um, and you'll find people that are just like, you're a, you're a demon. How could you do that to your kid? You're, you I had know. a physician once tell me that I was causing brain damage in my kids. But so here's my response to that. If we look at a typical bedtime routine of a, of a child with bedtime noncompliance, there are typically hours of yelling and screaming and crying. So even if that was the measure of brain damage, you are condensing that into three days and then it doesn't happen again. So the overall amount of crying and screaming is far less with ferberizing. It, it is this, in, in one way you could think about our conversation is no pain, no gain. I, I would just change it to be a little, it wouldn't roll off the tongue as well, but it would be no discomfort, no distress, no danger. Without those happening on a regular basis, there is no gain. We can sort of think about childhood as the repeated exposure to difficulties is necessary for kids to become self-actualized individuals. And when we step in and deprive them of all of these things that in the moment are uncomfortable, we're not actually helping them. The lesson to me for how to think about navigating a free society to me is, is so profound because I think America best understood is a country rooted in a notion of freedom. And freedom isn't perfect, but the why does freedom matter to me is because, and look, obviously we had, there was, slave, there was slavery, the country had to literally try to kill itself to realize this freedom for everyone, but it was right there in the Declaration of Independence. It's rooted in the fundamental presuppositions of the country. And if freedom has any value for the individual, it's the freedom to go out there and try stuff and try to discover what it is that you're best at or what, you know, what are those values that you want to close the, the, the gaps on? Let me try over here. Do I want to be creative? Do I want to, you know, do I want to be a monk? Do I want to be a parent? Do I want to be an astronaut? Whatever that might be. Like, you don't know. You might be good at these things. You might turn out you don't like them that much. And if you don't have freedom, you're not gonna be able to explore. So somebody's gonna have to tell you, well, here's what you're gonna be. 
and the thing that worries me the most about the culture that we've been talking about, this the culture that embraces anxiety, that embraces victimhood, is that, well, why would you even want freedom then? Who wants freedom when it just makes me anxious? I mean, how do you think about the macro picture of the work you're doing at the individual level? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's sort of think of modern day parenting as if it were written as a founding document of a country, right? So like, let's say there's the declaration of, of parenting and, and we use today's concepts, it would look radically different than the Declaration of Independence. And it might even say the exact opposite where freedom and individuality and failing are bad things and to be avoided at all costs. So the declaration uh, of safety, the declaration of say, what kind of a country would we be 250 years later if that had been our founding document? And so I'm very concerned that we're getting away from what made America great in the style of parenting that is now popular. And I think we have to get back to, you know, I, I like technology too. And I'm not just a guy who always says, let's, let's get back to basics. But in this case, I think it makes so much sense. I think we are hurting our children with the way that we interact with them. And we're also hurting parents. And so one, one thing that I, one concept I use with parents is this idea of selfish parenting. And I say it in the best possible way. You are working too hard. You are giving too much. I want you to be a little more selfish with your time. And that means independence for your kids is independence for you. And we have started to see some evidence of parents going on more dates when their kids are doing daily independence activities because they don't need to be there. And, and so uh, I think this is good for everybody in the family. You know, we've been talking about America and about the de Declaration of Independence or Dependence or Safety. Or, <laughs> and, um, uh, but your, sto your American story is pretty interesting. You are a first generation immigrant. Tell me about how you came to the country and how you think about, how you see the country through the, through, through the eyes of your own family history. Okay, and so I, I, may not, I may not look it, but I am Colombian. I was born in Colombia, um, as, as were many generations before me. Um, and my father left a year before my mother and I arrived to, you know, the American dream. I was one year old, and he uh, arrived in New York with nothing and, and started... Uh, to try to make a life for us. We arrived a year later, um, and um, I remember living in the basement of a house in Queens, New York, in one room, um, and it, it wasn't easy. And, and um, we were on a tourist visa, and that expired at some point, and then we stayed, as many immigrants do. So at that point, I was two, and um, I remember trying to, uh, a few years later, register for elementary school, and they wouldn't let me register because we didn't have any documentation. So you were technically, from age two, an unde uh, undocumented immigrant, an illegal immigrant. That's right. My parents were able to become citizens through Reagan's amnesty, but I guess there was a, it didn't apply to kids, and so I was in a strange situation of being an undocumented illegal alien in a family of citizens. I was able to register for elementary school. Um, but at some point, as college got closer, 
I was not going to be able to register for school. And so I had to try to get a green card. Um, you can't get a green card in the United States if you're there illegally. And so um, as, as Mitt Romney once suggested, I, I self-deported. So I went back to Colombia and I stood online outside the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, uh, along with lots of Colombians who were correctly living in Colombia and wanted <laughs> to come to the United States. And so I walked in for my interview in uh, my New York Mets cap and Hunter High School jacket, perfect English, and uh, the, the border agents all started laughing because they knew what was going on. And so uh, they gave me a green card and that was a really important moment in my life because if they had said no, I would have had to stay in a country I hadn't lived in in 15 years um, without my family. How do you think about this country through the lens of that family experience? Because I think one of the things that's so strange um, is these anxious teens that go on to be anxious college students, one of the messages they get is that America is the most oppressive country, that we are the empire of oppression. And man, the quickest way to get exposed to an alternative to that, in my experience, has been talk to a first-generation immigrant to this country. So how do you think about it? Yeah. Um, you know, I, in my job, we are trained to not be judgmental and to always understand that there's a really good reason for any belief or behavior that anyone has. Um, I can just say that when I think about this country, the first thing I think about is gratitude. Um, where else could my story be true? I mean, I'm here talking to you, and I was uh, a, a poor kid with, uh, you know, living in a one-room basement with no immigration status. Um, but it also um, helps me understand the value of adversity, because you might look at my, my story and feel badly that I had to go through that, but I wouldn't change that. And I know a lot of people say that I would never change anything. I have no regrets. Yeah. But that, uh, that experience affects me every single day. Whenever any problem comes up, any adversity, it is really easy for me to categorize that in terms of the worst thing ever to happen to anybody or a minor inconvenience. And most things end up being a minor inconvenience that are, there are probably solutions for. And most kids don't have that adversity. And so my independence treatment is trying to give them a taste of some difficult things that they actually want to do that are fun to help them get some of that message that when things don't go your way, you have the power. You have the internal locus of control, as we talked about last time, to do something about it. So I don't know if that directly addresses America to you, but what a place to, to explore adversity and, and taking risks. How do you think about your own personal role in the American story? When I think about this independence treatment uh, and the, the work with, with Let Grow, where we, we have a chance here to really change the trajectory of parenting in America in a way that could prevent 
you know, many, many kids from ending up anxious and, and depressed. And this is really a problem with my field is that the work we do is one-on-one -on -one and it requires a ton of individualized attention and work. And this treatment potentially could be disseminated to many, many people. And it is not a difficult treatment to use and it doesn't require a lot of sessions. And I'm hoping to change my entire field and how we approach kids as, as not being fragile. And, and you know, we, we've spoken about anti-fragility. My field hasn't gotten that message. And so that's where I think I can make the biggest, most sustained change. Dr. Camila Ortiz, thank you for being on Dad Saves America. It's been a real pleasure. It was so fun talking to you, John. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica.